how did proofs begin? It's like a chicken or the egg conundrum. Uh, why would anyone sit down and say to themselves, I'm going to prove some theorems today when nobody has ever done uh, such a thing ever before in human history? How could that idea enter somebody's mind just completely out of the blue like that? In fact, we kind of know the answer. The, the Greek tradition tells us who it was who had this light bulb moment. Thales, around the year minus 600 or so. Uh, that is hundreds of years before we have any direct historical sources for Greek geometry. Nevertheless, we still pretty much know what Thales proved, more or less. And later sources, you know, they describe this in some detail. Maybe mixed with legend. Um, nevertheless, the... It's probably more fact than fiction. We can analyze that a little bit later, the credibility of these sources. I will get back to that. But uh, let's first take these stories at face value. Let's see how we can put ourselves in daily shoes and relive that uh, creation of deductive geometry as it is conveyed in these Greek histories. So here we go. What was the first theorem ever proved? What was the spark that started the wildfire of axiomatic deductive mathematics. Well, here's the best guess based on historical evidence. It goes like this. The love at first sight moment, the theorem that opened our eyes to the power of mathematical proof was, are you ready? That's some Turkish music, according to a garage band, according to Apple. This is Turkish music. I play it because Thales was from present-day Turkey, you know, Thales of Miletus. So it is the, the Mediterranean uh, coast, more or less, of, of Turkey. Of course, uh, back then it was all Greek-speaking, Greek culture, and they wouldn't really have played the kind of uh, music that is today classified as Turkish music in, in, in garage band, I suppose. Nevertheless, there you have it. I set the scene a little bit. Of, let's feel uh, you're transported back to the Mediterranean coast of ancient Turkey 2,600 years ago. And this is going to be the, you know, the, the grand moment when we discover the very idea of a proof. And what theorem was it that gave that idea? Right, that's where I was going with this. So now we've got sidetracked with this cultural... Right, so once again, what is the grand theorem? What is the moment when geometry begins? Theorem number one in human history... A diameter cuts a circle in half. Pretty disappointing, isn't it? What a lame theorem. It's barely even a theorem at all. How can you fall in love with geometry by proving something so trivial and obvious? Yeah, the diameter goes right through the middle, it cuts the thing in two pieces. Obviously, they're equal. What's the... Th Yikes, right? But don't despair. It's not as hopeless as it looks. It's actually very nice. It's not about the theorem, it's about the proof. So let's look at the proof. Let's see if that convinces you that there is something worthwhile going on here. Here's how you prove it. The theorem that uh, the diameter cuts a circle in half. Suppose it doesn't. It's going to be a proof by contradiction. Suppose the diameter does not divide the circle into two equal halves. Very well. You have this line going through the midpoint of a circle. It's cut into two pieces. Suppose those two pieces are not the same. Right, I take one of the pieces and I flip it onto the other, like you fold an omelette or a crepe. Well, the pieces were not equal then, that's what we supposed. So you flip one on top of the other, then they don't match up. There must be some place where one of the two pieces is sticking out beyond the other. Now, 
draw a radius then in that direction from the midpoint of the circle to the place on the perimeter where the two halves don't match up, where they don't align. Well, then you have one radius being longer than the other. The distance from the midpoint to the perimeter is longer for one of these uh, two halves than the other. That means that the thing wasn't a circle to start with. A circle is a figure that is equally far away from the midpoint in all directions. That's what being a circle means. So we have proved the theorem, because we have proved that two things are incompatible with one another. You can't be both a circle and have mismatched halves. If you have mismatched halves, then you have unequal radii, and that means you're not a circle. So a circle must have equal halves. Bam, theorem. You know, it's a boring result, but it's a gorgeous proof or a suggestive proof. It's a proof that hints at a new world. Thales must have felt like a wizard who just discovered he had superpowers. Whoa, you know, you can do that? What a discovery it must have been. By pure reasoning, by drawing out consequences of a definition, one can prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that certain statements could not possibly be wrong. Huh? That's a thing? That's something one can do? Wow, you know, let's do that to everything, right? That's how Thales must have felt. So that's how Thales discovered proof, as best as we can guess. Well, there are some other uh, theorems attributed to Thales as well, and I want to bring up one in particular here that I think is also a kind of archetype of uh, what mathematics is all about, or how mathematics might have begun, deductive mathematics might have started once upon a time. So... The theorem we uh, just saw about the diameter bisecting uh, the circle perfectly embodies one prototypical mode of doing mathematics. And, you know, the pure mathematics paradigm, you might call it, this, this stuff about uh, logical consequences of definitions, proof by contradiction, all that, that type of stuff is still with us today, isn't it? Thales' proof really hits the nail on the head with that way of thinking, that entire kind of aesthetic We've been doing the same thing over and over ever since in mathematics. You know, take a modern course in whatever group theory, for instance. You know, it's basically just Thales proof idea applied 500 times over. You know, drawing consequences logically from definitions, proving things by contradiction—it's uh, it's right. Uh, it just sets the tone for the entire uh, course of uh, pure mathematics, you might say. Well, here's another. Uh, of the re result attributed to Thales. Maybe he, that was the way he uh, invented uh, geometry. Who knows? Uh, I want to say that the second way is emblematic of another mode of mathematical thought. It is a second road to proof. The second way is based more on, on play, exploration, discovery, instead of logic and definitions. And uh, the example I want to use to make this point is what is indeed often called Thales' theorem, which states that any triangle raised on the diameter of a circle has a right angle. So in other words, you, you picture a circle, you cut it in half with a diameter, now you raise a triangle using the diameter as one of the sides and the third vertex of the triangle is on the anywhere on the circle. So it looks like a kind of a tent sticking up from the diameter. You have a, a two walls of a tent, so to speak, uh, meeting somewhere on a point on the circle. So it could be an asymmetrical tent, so to speak, that is pointing more to one side or the, or the other. 
no matter how you pitch the tent, as long as the tip of, the, of it is any point on the circle, then the angle between the two walls of the tent, as it were, uh, at that point, at the tip, are going to meet at a right angle, 90 degrees. So that's Thales' theorem. Or how might Thales have proved this theorem? Uh, so we don't really know, based on historical evidence, necessarily how he proved it. Actually, the proof about the, how he the result regarding the diameter bisecting a circle is uh, very likely that that would have been uh, Thales' original uh, proof. But for this uh, Thales' theorem, uh, we are more in the dark. How somebody, but let us consider uh, one hypothesis about how Thales might have arrived at this proof, which makes a lot of sense contextually. So we must imagine that Thales, he would have stumbled upon the proof uh, somehow. Remember, we're not trying to explain how someone might think of a proof of this particular theorem in and of itself. That this that would be the wrong perspective because it takes for granted that in mathematics one tries to prove things. Yeah, we take that for granted today, but what we're trying to explain here is how could where this, does this vision to prove everything in geometry come from in the first place? How did it start? How could s someone have struck upon Thales' theorem unintentionally, as it were, and through that accident become aware of the idea of deductive geometry? Indeed, Thales' theorem is not really very interesting or important in and of itself. If you had this vision of subjecting all geometry to systematic proof, why would you start with this theorem, uh, Thales' theorem? You know, why would you make that such a centerpiece as Thales supposedly did? Well, you wouldn't, really. Uh, the, the interesting thing about Thales' theorem is not uh, that it was one of the first results to which mathematicians applied deductive proof. It's not interesting from that point of view. Rather, the interesting thing about it is that there was the occasion for mathematicians to stumble upon the very idea of proof itself, unintentionally. There's a story uh, about Thales falling into a well. He got so caught up in astronomical reasoning, staring at the stars, uh, that he forgot his uh, surroundings. It's recorded in, in Plato even. Plato says, while he was studying the stars and looking upwards, he fell into a pit. Because he was so eager to know the things in the sky, he could not see what was before him at his very feet. So that's perhaps a legend. But uh, the discovery of Thales' theorem, it must have been kind of like that, actually. When you think about it, discovering mathematical proof, it must have been like falling into a pit all of a sudden. You know, you're looking in one direction, boom. Suddenly you find yourself having accidentally smashed face first into this unrelated new thing that you didn't even know existed. You know, that's how the discovery of mathematical proof must have gone somehow. How could Thales' theorem be like that among all the world's theorems what makes Thales theorem particularly conducive to this kind of fortuitous uh, discovery of proof here is my hypothesis in this age of innocence before anyone knew anything about proof people still liked shapes they had ruler and compass they used these tools for measuring fields and whatnot but they also liked the aesthetic of geometry they were playing around with ruler and compass. They were playing with shapes. After five minutes of uh, playing with a compass, you describe how to draw a regular hexagon. If you remember, you probably did this as a kid. You draw a circle without changing the compass opening. You run the compass along the circumference 
with the same radius as you, the one that you drew the circles, circle in the first place, and it fits exactly six times. So it gets you a very pleasing uh, shape. You can connect those points and get yourself a nice hexagon. We know for a fact that people did that kind of stuff before Thales. There are hexagonal tiling patterns in Mesopotamian mosaics from from before Thales, from the year minus 700 or so. You have those kinds of mosaics, mathematically designed mosaic patterns. And the dodecahedra, that's another one of those things. The dodecahedron is you know, a 12-sided figure, like you know those dice that you use in Dungeons and Dragons or something. Uh, dodecahedron, it's literally 210-sided, right? Dodeca 210, so, which means 12, right? In other words, so it has 12 faces, and each of them is a regular pentagon. That's the dodecahedron shape, and, and uh, those things also are in the archaeological record, just like the hexagonal uh, tilings. People made the dodecahedra from stone and bronze. Uh, there are a couple of dozen dodecahedra from antiquity that have been uh, preserved. And the oldest ones are indeed older than Thales even. So this is really old stuff from the early days, you know, from the naive days. Before people had deductive geometry, they could make dodecahedra, apparently. Well, they did. So they were used for uh, maybe oracular purposes, you know, like tarot cards or something, predicting the future. Or, or maybe they were playing board games too. They also had Dungeons and Dragons, you know, who knows? Something like that could, uh, we don't know exactly what they were for. But, you know, anyway, they were Dodecahedra back then. So my point is that people were interested in geometrical designs for various purposes, artistic, uh, cultural, whatever, you know, they were a lot of mathematics kicking around, uh, not just measuring fields for tax purposes. And people were clearly working with instruments, a ruler and a compass and so on, to make these things, hexagons, pentagons, and so on. So it's easy to arrive at Thales' theorem, in fact, by just playing around with ruler and compass, trying to draw pretty things. Here's how you might do it. Start with a rectangle. Okay, now uh, draw its two diagonals, it's like an X going through the middle. Now you put the needle of the compass where the two diagonals cross, right, it's right in the midpoint of the rectangle. Now you set the, uh, the pen of the compass to one of the corners of the rectangle and you spin it around. Then you get a circle that fits perfectly, perfectly snugly around the rectangle, the circumscribed uh, circle. Look, actually, think about the figure that emerged now. What have we done, you know? Actually, a diagonal of the rectangle uh, becomes a diameter of the circle. And the rectangle uh, pieces that are sticking out from the, from the diagonal, they become exactly precisely one of those kinds of tent uh, triangles in Thales' theorem that I was trying to describe. You know, there's uh, kind of a, a triangle erected from the diameter. Suddenly, now, Thales' theorem it just pops out at you. It leaps to the eye once you start looking at it from this perspective. So why is Thales' theorem true? Why does any one of those tent triangles raised on the diameter of a circle have a right angle? Well, it's because it comes from a rectangle, so to speak. Any of those tents is half a rectangle. It's a very powerful kind of shift of perspective. By looking at the triangle this way, we reveal hidden relationships, a hidden order in the nature of things. Certain angles must always be right angles. It's a kind of a metaphysical necessity that we have 
felt when we were looking at it from this new point of view, which wasn't evident uh, when we just thought about it uh, as a, some whatever triangle sitting in a circle. But once we started thinking about it, it's actually half a rectangle, you know, when you think of Well, then that puts it in a whole new light and we start seeing these relationships. So our eyes have been opened, maybe for the very first time, to the existence of these kinds of necessities, these kinds of hidden relationships that are out there for the thinking person to uncover. So the key to this was this shift of perspective that the triangle is really half a rectangle. So suppose instead we had been stuck from the point of view that, well, we're starting with the triangle inscribed in a circle. The kinds of associations that uh, suggest themselves from that point of view, they're not uh, terribly useful. So from that point of view, if you're looking at for a proof, uh, what would you do? I start with the triangle. And now what? You know, well, maybe you could, for example, uh, connect the, the midpoint of the circle to the tip of the triangle. Okay, now I cut it into two smaller triangles. What are you going to do with them? Something with angle sums or whatever. Or maybe you might be tempted to drop the perpendicular instead from the tip of the triangle and down. Now you have two right angle triangles. Okay, what are you going to do? do? So, I don't know, Pythagorean theorem. What you know? So. Uh, these kinds of things is not what we want. Those kinds of approaches quickly become too technical. Remember, this was supposed to be the beginnings of geometry. You're not supposed to use a bunch of previous results like angle sums, Pythagorean theorems. No, it's supposed to be a proof from first principles, a proof before all other proofs. The idea that the triangle is really half a rectangle is different. It's transforms how we look at the diagram. It changes the, the emphasis. It changes what we think of as primary. Now, from this point of view, the rectangle comes first, the triangle comes second, the circle comes last. The theorem actually isn't so much about circles at all, so to speak, from this point of view. The circle is kind of a secondary artifact. With this proof, we are like artists. We take a step back from the canvas, we tilt our heads, and we have this epiphany. The epiphany was made possible by the way we have played with these ideas previously. We were just playing around with ruler and compass. We explored triangles, rectangles, uh, and circles. We had open-minded affection for that, those kinds of shapes altogether. And epiphanies, like Thales' theorem, they emerge from this play. Inspiration comes naturally in this context, much like an artist would have been familiar with the kinds of subject matter and by just intuiting relationships, uh, you can stumble upon the idea of proof. Unlike those other boring proofs that I alluded to that were based on cutting up the triangle into pieces, throwing the book at it, so to speak, angle sums, Pythagorean theorem, etc., you know, apply a bunch of theorems, see what happens. And, you know, that's an uninspired approach, a brute force approach. It lacks aesthetic inspiration. It, it doesn't have that epiphany of revealing the true nature of the triangle or uh, its other half that it was destined to be reunited with, you know, like the beautiful Thales uh, proof. So geometry, it could not have started with these boring by-the-book proofs because they only make sense after there's a geometry book to begin with. Geometry might have started with the epiphany type of proof. That's a way in which someone like Thales might have arrived at the idea of proof through playing around with ruler and compass and having this uh, kind of uh, inspiration to look at the uh, 
the, the shapes into different ways. You know. And perhaps you're familiar with uh, Lockhart's Lament. It's a, a great essay on what's wrong with mathematics education. You should go read it. It's available online. Just Google uh, Lockhart's Lament. It's interesting that uh, uh, Paul Lockhart he uses this very example, actually, of Daly's theorem to make his point that without making any allusion to the history of it, he describes how his own students discovered Thales' theorem, basically the way I described it, the way I have uh, hypothesized that maybe Thales discovered it. And Lockhart also very eloquently uh, captures there how this proof is so much more satisfying than the boring uh, by-the-book uh, proofs that you would find in a textbook. No, it's not for nothing that history and education go together on this point. It's not for nothing that uh, Paul Lockhart, who strives, when striving for inspired, uh, meaningful teaching for students, uh, accidentally, I believe, rediscovered the or struck upon the same ideas that Thales had uh, when he invented geometry in the first place. It's natural that these things go together. Proofs must have started with a compelling aesthetic experience, with the kind of wow moment. There was no other way at the time. There was no one to force Thales to memorize facts for an exam. Discovery compelled him to value mathematics. If we want to foster intrinsic motivation in our students, it's a good idea to consider what made people fall in love with this stuff in the first place. First love, it's always the purest, the most innocent. Modern textbooks are like arranged marriages forced upon the students. History always has the true love story. Let us recreate that in our classrooms. Uh, Well, nevertheless, actually, for all this, I tried to convince you of the beauty of Thales' theorem and the proof and its discovery and the epiphany. You might still think that Thales' theorem is a bit boring. Something, something is always a right angle. So what? You know, who cares? You know, as I've tried to argue, though, it was probably not the theorem itself that was impressive to Thales and its uh, contemporaries. Uh, Rather, it was the idea that there is such a thing as theorems and proofs at all. It was that there was the discovery. There there are these hidden truths that can be uncovered through reasoning. Remarkable, you know. Mm -hmm. That was the, the wow moment. Nevertheless, in fact, even the theorem itself is interesting. You thought it was uh, some boring thing about a right angle. No, no, no. This is interesting stuff. You can do great things with Thales' theorem. You don't believe me? Well, I'm going to tell you uh, such an example. It is. Uh, I bring this example up because it has a rich uh, historical uh, contextual embedding, so it will serve our purposes twofold. Right, so there's this ancient legend about Queen Dido, daughter of the king of Tyre, major city in antiquity. You can still see the ruins of this ancient city in uh, present-day Lebanon. There you go. We're in the Orient now. Can you feel it? Dido, she's the queen over there. And uh, fortunately, things turn sour at the court. She has to flee because of all these intrigues that are murders and betrayals and whatnot. So she grabs, uh, I don't know, a couple of uh, diadems of her nightstand, you know, maybe a chest of gold that she put aside for a rainy day and hastily sails off into the night with hardly a friend left in the world. 
She has to go all the way to present day Tunisia, thousands of kilometers away, and try to start over somehow in a manner uh, befitting a royal in these desolate shores of Africa. So, using her treasured chest, Dido strikes a bargain to buy some land. As much land as she can enclose with the skin of an ox, the story goes. So she cuts the ox hide into thin strips and she ties them together. Okay, now what? She now has this long string, which she can use as a kind of fence to seal off the, the land that she wants. What kind of shape should she make out of this uh, string made of ox skin? Uh, a square, a rectangle, a triangle? Nope. Dido knows better. Perhaps a royal education included mathematics. Look, make it round. That's the best way. The circle has a maximal area among all figures with a given perimeter. Or in this case, in fact, since she was by the ocean, a semicircle uh, with the shoreline as a natural boundary on the other side. Let's prove this, that the semicircle is the best choice. I'm going to prove this by contradiction. Suppose somebody has fenced in an area that is not semicircular. Then I can show how to make it better, uh, how to move the fence so that the area becomes bigger without adding any more fence. So, okay, you have the shoreline, that's a straight line. And from uh, one point on the shore, you're know, going inland, you have the fence and it comes back down again and meets the shore again in a second point. So together with the shoreline, this uh, this fence, it's kind of a little arch shape uh, going inland and back, it closes off a certain area. Suppose this shape is not a semicircle. Well, if it had been a semicircle, then Thales' theorem would have applied. And then that would tell you that the this angle that I was talking about before, the so-called tent angle, at any point along the fence must be a right angle. So if the shape is not a semicircle, there, that means there is some point along the fence where this angle is not a right angle. I say that making this angle into a right angle improves the amount of area covered. You can picture it like this. So uh, you have this shape that is enclosed by the fence. Imagine that you have that thing cut out of cardboard. And on the perimeter you have some point marked. This is where the uh, tent angle is not a right angle. So on your cardboard you have this triangle drawn, like a Thales theorem kind of triangle, you know, a triangle consisting of the straight shoreline on one side, which is like the diameter in Thales theorem, and then you have two lines going in from there, uh, from the endpoints of this shoreline uh, segment, uh, going up, meeting at a point on the perimeter. That's what I call the tenth point. Well, let's cut that triangle out of the cardboard then. So you have the entire enclosure cut out of the cardboard, and now you make a hole in it, which comes out of that triangle. So you're left with two pieces, uh, whatever bits were sticking out from the, those, the two sides of the triangle there. Now you move those two pieces so that the tent angle becomes a right angle. And that means you're moving the, the end points along the shoreline. As you move the two points on the shoreline, you change the angle at which the two cardboard pieces meet one another. The two cardboard pieces, they meet in a single point, a ten point, and that's uh, like a kind of a hinge that you you can open or close bigger or smaller, a bigger or smaller angle, so you can uh, slide these things around until the hinge angle 
at the tent point becomes 90 degrees. Note, in fact, you didn't change the perimeter when you did this operation. When you're sliding this stuff around, the perimeter remains the same. You just move the same uh, perimeter around into a different position. So the fence going around the enclosure is constant throughout. When As you twist and turn, the, the perimeter is still the same. You did, however, increase the area enclosed in this shape, in fact. Because, uh, look, if you have two sticks of a fixed length and you want to enclose the, the biggest triangle that you can with those two sticks, the best way is to make the angle between them a right angle. It's quite clear intuitively, you know. For instance, if you consider that the area of a triangle is base times height over 2, as, as we say, uh, then uh, if one of your sticks is the base, then to maximize the area, you want to maximize the height, which means the perpendicular height going up from the base. Obviously, that's best done by pointing the other stick straight up at right angles, making 90 degrees with the first side. So what this proves is that for any fence enclosure that's not the semicircle, you can make a better one. You can move the fence around and make the area bigger. So the semicircle is the best solution and all the other ones are less good. I don't know if you could follow all of that to visualize it in your mind. Maybe try reconstructing the argument for yourself. You know, it really is intuitive and beautiful and simple. So what is the moral of the story that I have told here? Mathematically, this story is an answer to the so what question regarding Thales' theorem. We may have seen like a boring enough theorem. Here, though, we see it in action, a beautiful and unexpected way. It's a key ingredient in this proof about how to enclose land. Who would have seen that coming, actually? This suggests that mathematics has a kind of snowballing effect, a self-fertilizing aspect to it. Thales' theorem, well, what's the big deal? It's just some boring observation about the triangle in a circle. Who cares about that? It may not seem like much, but one thing leads to another. Once Thales' theorem is a thing to you, you start seeing it in other places, unexpected places, like this problem about area, for example. You wouldn't think those things were related at first sight, but the more mathematics you do, the more connections you find. Pick any theorem, no matter how boring, like Thales' theorem, and you can find these amazing things where this boring theorem is actually a key insight that opens entirely new ways of thinking about seemingly unrelated problems. That's mathematics for you. No wonder it caught on like a bug among the Greeks uh, once they got the ball rolling. One moment you stumble upon some random result like Thales' theorem, just playing around with ruler and compass. The next thing you know, you're seeing mathematics everywhere, how to build cities, etc. So that's the mathematical moral of the story. Now, we must go back and say something about the historical side of all of this. What do we really know about Thales and his theorems and uh, Queen Dido and all of that? How much is history and how much is legend? Okay, if you start with uh, Dido, that story comes to us primarily through Virgil, the Aeneid, the famous epic poem. That was written in Roman times, around the year uh, minus 20 or whatever. It, it's just referring to historical, or supposedly historical events that took place, in fact, uh, even uh, before Thales, maybe two centuries or so before Thales, around minus 800-ish. So we have Virgil's version, that's what has come down to us. But he's clearly just stealing older stories. On these things, uh, the wood have been around for centuries in Greek culture, various literary and historical retellings of this, the legend of Dido, who probably had another name originally. 
and was given a Roman-friendly name by Virgil. Anyway, all the, there were a bunch of versions of that story that were around, and they're now gone, unfortunately. Nevertheless, it's perfectly plausible that maybe there really was such a historical queen who really did flee her home, her royal uh, palaces, and uh, had to land on the shores of uh, Africa, where she found this new settlement, which was to become the great city of Carthage, as the legend has it. Maybe, indeed, she even made the city walls semicircular, who knows? It's perfectly conceivable that she might have wanted to minimize the perimeter for whatever reason, and that she might have known that semicircular shape was optimal for this purpose. That's not impossible. Anyway, at, at the time, though, there would not have been such a mathematical proof of this, like the one I sketched above. The proof I outlined is from Jakob Steiner in the early 19th century, for Greek times, we do have a proof of this result. Well, not from the time of Dido, obviously, but a little bit later. And, and uh, nevertheless, they did prove it, you know, that the circle is optimal or semicircle in the, in the case of a shore-adjacent uh, construction. So the Greeks were absolutely aware of this result, that the semicircle is optimal. Uh, they may not have been aware of the particular proof that I suggested above, or maybe they were, who knows. In any case, they had at least one other proof. So the story of Queen Dido is not so much a part of the history of mathematics as such, but maybe indirectly it could tell us something. If it says anything about the history of mathematics, it probably illuminates mostly not the time when the events uh, supposedly took place, around minus 800 at the time of Dido herself, nor the time when the sources that we have are available to us around the year zero or the Roman times. Maybe, though, the story says something about the centuries in between, where the story would have been passed on and reworked and gradually sort of uh, taken on the shape in which it has been passed down to us. The story was marinated, so to speak, in Greek culture. Maybe they were the ones who gave it this mathematical flavor. The shoe fits. The Greeks valued wise, aristocratic, well-educated rulers who designed rational policy for the common good informed by reason and mathematics. Maybe they let these ideals color the way they retold the story of Queen Dido and her round city. From this point of view, we can also speculate that uh, by the time Virgil comes around and writes the Roman version of the story, this appreciation of mathematics is no longer what it once was. Indeed, uh, Virgil doesn't really uh, spell out the mathematical optimization aspect of the story. Dido is uh, kind of a side character in his account. His epic about Aeneas is on his quest. He's going to found Rome. That's what his thing is about. Aeneas is shipwrecked and blown ashore at Carthage, Dido's round city. Dido falls in love with him. He does not return her love, however. He, he sails away, and Dido uh, kills herself because of her broken heart. Uh, historian of mathematics Morris Klein concludes uh, the story in these words, and so an ungrateful and unreceptive man with a rigid mind caused the loss of a potential mathematician. This was the first blow to mathematics which the Romans dealt. And sure enough, there's uh, plenty more where that came from as far as the role of the Romans is concerned. And one can indeed view this story then as uh, symbolic of this transition from the wise of philosopher kings, or queens in this case, of the Greek world, who cherished mathematics and used it to improve the world, 
the transition from that utopia to the heartless Romans who only think of themselves. They couldn't care less about Thales' theorem, did they? You know, in the Greek world, math nerds were considered attractive. Somehow these ignorant Romans, you know, they didn't think that a geometry queen was girlfriend material at all, apparently. So that's the uh, the story of Dido and the round city and the optimization proof and all that. It's it's very interesting in terms of the broader mathematical cultural points that it connects to. But in and of itself, it's not uh, directly history per se. It's different with uh, Thales. That's more fact than legend. As best as we can determine, Thales really did prove that the diameter uh, bisects a circle, most likely with the proof discussed above. This is very likely to be actual historical fact. Uh, the sources uh, that we have for this are far from perfect. You have this primarily Proclus, who was writing in the year uh, 450 or so, basically a thousand years after Thales. And these kinds of late sources are hit and miss. They have no authority in and of themselves. Proclus is nobody. I mean, his own understanding of the history uh, of mathematics are, are very poor. A mediocre thinker. A mediocre scholar living in a mediocre age. But those are the kinds of sources that we have. Basically as authoritative as some factoid that you read on the back of a cereal box or something. But there's hope. Back in its glory days, Greece was just an outstanding intellectual culture. Some of the stuff about, for example, Thales can be traced back to that time, which makes it highly credible. Aristotle's student, Eudemus wrote a history of geometry, is no longer with us, unfortunately. Oh, God, what a loss. Ignorant ages neglected it, and now it's gone. But what a work uh, that would have been to have anyway. People like that knew what they were doing. Later people like Proclus, they are like some randos posting half-baked ideas on blogspots, you know, poorly informed comments on Facebook. That's the kind of credibility that they have. But people like Eudemus, well, that's a different story. These people are like first-rate scholars at a research institution, you know, with all the infrastructure that one could dream of. Libraries, extremely knowledgeable, intelligent colleagues, a range of expertise, broad financial, cultural support from the public, from politicians, etc. Eudemos, History of Geometry, that's a proper, you know, university press book uh, written for the ages, peer-reviewed to the teeth with a nice dust jacket blur by Aristotle and so on. That's the kind of stuff that uh, uh, people like Eudemus, they were not in the business of passing on random gossip, you know, unchecked factoids because they sound cool. That's the kind of stuff that Proclus does, but not these guys. They were proper scholars, proper intellectuals in the age of Aristotle in peak Athens. You got to trust those guys. And indeed, a lot of the stuff about Thales can be traced back to this uh, lost source to Eudemus' history. When Proclus says that Thales was the first to prove that the circle is bisected by its diameter, the source is Eudemus, ultimately. Proclus is copying that stuff from there. This makes his information very credible. The Thales stuff, it really happened. Or at least the part about the diameter bisecting the circle and the part about Thales creating deductive geometry, being the first to prove stuff. You know, that part is quite true. The part about Thales' theorem, unfortunately, cannot be directly linked back to the these best sources, to the Eudemus stuff, to the age of Aristotle. So that's a little more up in the air, whether that stuff is uh, 
historical fact or not, but you know, contextually it makes sense. So maybe. In fact, the stories about Thales and the origins of geometry, they were evidently well known, not only by specialized scholars like Eudemus, but in fact known to the general Athenian public. Aristophanes, the playwright, uses the name of Thales as a symbol of geometry a, a few times in his plays. Just as today one might use the name of Einstein, for instance, to evoke the image of a scientist. So Aristophanes, he has one of his speakers in his dialogue say, that man is a Thales, you know, meaning that the person is a geometer, for example. Or evidently the theater-going public in classical Athens, they could be expected to understand this reference, just as today anybody knows who Einstein was, for instance. So every educated person would know about Thales and the origins of geometry. And in fact, the uh, public respect for geometry and its history was uh, maybe even so great that Aristophanes uh, felt the, the need to have one of his characters lament the respect for geometry as excessive. Uh, so this character, the speaker in, in one of the plays, says, why do we go on admiring old Thales? You know, it's a quote from uh, the play by Aristophanes. What a time to be alive that would have been, you know, when playwrights had to tackle issues such that maybe there is too much respect and interest in mathematics among the general public. Uh, hey, guys, maybe we need to cool it with how much we love geometry. What a luxury problem, you know. It's hardly one that uh, Hollywood blockbusters today have to grapple with, is it? But anyway, so maybe we shouldn't read too much into those isolated quotes uh, from Aristophanes over there. Nevertheless, the general intellectual credibility of that age is very important. These very intelligent and serious people recorded in scholarly histories the accounts about Thales founding deductive geometry and proving that the circle is bisected by its diameter. Those are, uh, these guys are writing only two or three hundred years after Thales and they are in a direct lineage uh, from him. Probably there were entire works by Thales still around in libraries and so on that these people could consult. So there you go. It, that's the origins and proof of deductive geometry. We really do know quite a bit about it with credibility. It's a story worth knowing, if you ask me. Thank you.